Welcome, and thank you for joining me for another episode. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. Every year, the U.S. experiences a heat wave, and every year, they seem to be getting longer and hotter. This year, my thoughts drifted to Death Valley, and I wondered what it might be like to live in such extreme heat. So I sent off an email to the Park Service asking if anyone there would be interested in doing an episode on Death Valley for Nature Revisited, to which I received a reply from Clint Augustin saying he would love to. So I called Clint in the midst of our heat wave to talk about what it is like to be in one of the hottest and most beautiful places on earth and what we might learn from it. Current temperatures say it's about 115 degrees outside, but you know, you get used to the heat after a while. You know, I'm originally from Minnesota. I never thought I would adjust to it, but uh, it's amazing just how you get used to environments like this over time. It, it definitely builds a bit of character. How long have you been there? About a couple years now. Before this, it was at the Grand Canyon. Before that, it was Katmai, Alaska. Let's talk a little bit about the history of Death Valley. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a pretty complex history here. When it comes to the natural history of Death Valley, it's really an interaction between geology and local climate. Death Valley proper really started to form about three million years ago. And it's still forming to this day very, very slowly. Right around this area, we're seeing the basin and range effect. The continent itself is being stretched apart by plate tectonics. Mountain range after mountain range after mountain range, separated by these long, narrow depressions. And Death Valley is just really the most pronounced of those in the area. Conditions are very, very warm here for a number of different reasons. You have a rain shadow effect that builds up as rain moves across towards us from the Pacific Ocean. The mountains to the west of us get a ton of moisture, and each mountain range gets less and less water until by the time the clouds reach Death Valley, there's essentially no moisture left. It's an incredibly dry environment. And because of that dryness, it's also an incredibly hot environment. What ends up happening is these long, narrow mountain ranges mean that this valley works kind of like a convection oven. Heat gets trapped as it rises out of the valley, gets cycled back down towards the ground. And as a result, it just reflects off of the rock and it just superheats this place. So because of all of these interlocking factors, Death Valley is the hottest, driest, and lowest place in North America. The highest recorded temperature was recorded here in Death Valley in 1913. And it was a temperature of 134 degrees Fahrenheit. And not only is there this complex natural history, something that you can see recorded in the rock layers as well, but there's this really complex human story in this environment. It's been inhabited for thousands of years. There is a tribe in the area, the Tembisha Shoshone, that still lives within the valley. And there's also this incredibly complex history of mining and the development of tourism in the West. 
You said that Death Valley is one of the most special of all the parks that you've worked at. Every park I've worked in, I've loved deeply. And at the time, it feels like the most special one of all. But here in Death Valley, this is a place that just absolutely surprised me and captured my imagination. It's got 3.4 million acres. So that means it's larger than the state of Connecticut. And it's just incredibly diverse. I'm consistently surprised by what you can find out here. Just in a day, you can explore salt flats and sand dunes and colorful badlands, canyons that etch themselves deep into the mountains. You can climb up mountains to get up into Juniper Pinion woodland or even reach Bristlecone Pine Forest up on the top of a mountain peak. So it's a surprisingly diverse area. There are so many aspects of it that stand out to me, from just an absolutely incredible night sky to gorgeous sunrises and sunsets and the opportunity to experience solitude and silence like no other place. And to top it all off, there's incredible biodiversity here. It's kind of astonishing, but a place called Death Valley actually has an enormous amount of life within it in different pockets and places if you just know where to look. So I'd say it's a place that is consistently surprising, consistently strange in the best way possible. So, so can I assume that because of its harsh conditions, that Death Valley has been less impacted by humans than other parks? In some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. It's actually a really interesting history. The harshness of this place does ensure that populations have always been relatively low in the area. But at the same time, because of its association with mineral wealth, there's actually a significant amount of mining history here. In fact, there are 10,000 mining sites within the park. Throughout the park, you'll find remnants of ghost towns and mining sites everywhere. There is that significant human impact here that I think most people coming through the park aren't initially aware of. And to top it all off, you do see other signs of that human impact over time. For instance, there are burrows within the park. It's an introduced species, and those were left behind by some of the miners in the area. Human impact can be kept somewhat lowered by just how extreme this environment is, but you do see signs of that human influence everywhere once you know how to spot it. One comment I get from a lot of visitors is they're surprised by just how much is out here. I think in the popular perception, Death Valley is either just flat, cracked mud stretching in every direction, or it's sand dunes stretching as far as the eye can see, but there's so much more here. Because of that huge elevational shift, where at the bottom of the valley floor, it's 282 feet below sea level, up to the top of Telescope Peak further to the west, above 11,000 feet. And because there's 11 different mountain ranges in the area, you find so many different climates and microclimates and different vegetation communities throughout the park. In the lower reaches, you're experiencing sort of the hot Mojave Desert ecosystem, where only really the toughest plants and animals can survive. And then within that low-lying reach, you find sand dunes that themselves encourage unique ecosystems in part because of the way they hold in water. There are, in fact, certain species that only exist on a single sand dune in a remote section in the park. And then as you travel uphill around some of the mountains, and this is where you start to see plant life like the Joshua tree, which is really the iconic plant of the Mojave Desert. 
when you're moving up closer towards 6,000 or 7,000 feet, that's when you get into juniper pinion woodland, which is really similar to what you see in parts of Utah, just a diverse landscape. And then as you climb up higher, you can get into stands of limber pine or even bristlecone pine, these ancient gnarled trees at the top of Telescope Peak. And to top it all off, there's thousands of springs within the park, and they encourage these own sort of unique oases throughout the park. And there are certain springs where you'll find species that are endemic just to that one location, which means you find them nowhere else in the world. The route a lot of people take through the park is moving on Highway 190, which cuts right across that valley. In that two-hour drive, moving from east to west, you go from high desert down into low desert. You'll see these badlands of just incredibly sculpted rock. You'll see salt flats, sand dunes, and then climb up two passes into these new environments. And then on the far western side, you can start to see the Joshua trees pop up everywhere. So you get hints of that, this incredible diversity, even with just the quickest trip traveling through the park. But a lot of those locations, a lot of those environments, take a lot of exploration to really find. Badwater Basin is the salt flat that's in the lowest part of the park, 282 feet below sea level. And in part, it's the remnant of a lake from the Pleistocene. And just year after year after year of minerals washing down and being left behind in that area. And you get salt pans like this, in particular in the desert, where evaporation exceeds rainfall. So out here, we get about two inches of rain a year. And the evaporation rate is something like 150 inches of rain a year. It's just such a strange environment. There's a tiny spring out there. Uh, there's a couple of things, actually. And within those springs, there's a snail called the badwater snail that you only find in those springs. They're about the size of a period in Times New Roman font. But it just speaks to this idea that even in the harshest environment, life finds a way. Oh, yeah. The Badlands are just such a surreal environment. You see them in a few different places, particularly on the northern side of the Black Mountains. And they're just these colorful, sculpted hills of alluvial sedimentary rock that get eroded away by even just the small amounts of water that we get here. So you get these very colorful canyons and sculpted hills. And the light that falls upon the Badlands at sunrise and sunset is just incredible. And you just find so many colors embedded within the rock. Under certain lighting, it can even look kind of whimsical, like something that couldn't possibly be real. Ante's view is definitely one of the best views in the park. You're actually up a mile above the valley overlooking it. So when you look down, that's the equivalent of looking into the depths of the Grand Canyon. And you can look across that incredible expanse and see the whole of Badwater Basin, and you see the Panamint Mountains rising out to the west. It's probably one of the absolute best places in the park for a sunrise. The sand dunes are honestly one of my favorite places in the desert. It's where some of that harshness of jagged stone becomes just incredibly soft. You can see just mound after mound after mound of sand stretching in every direction. You can see just wave-like patterns scattered everywhere. Each sand dune is unique because the sand dunes are one of the favorite habitats of our kangaroo rats, our kit foxes, coyotes, the sidewinder, a number of different insects lizards of many, many sorts. For the sand dunes, you can find these dramas of life played out by tracks left behind in the sand. Does Death Valley have four seasons? 
we have a joke here that really there's two seasons in Death Valley. We say there's, there's hot summer and dark summer. So hot summer is the half of the year where you get temperatures that soar above triple digits regularly. And then dark summer is where, you know, conditions can hover around in the 60s and 70s, just incredibly pleasant. But because it's in the middle of winter, it gets dark much, much faster. But in reality, we do experience four or even arguably five seasons. Just some of those impacts are much more subtle here than what you find in more temperate environments. So in fall, as temperatures cool, we get tiny hints of rain here and there, or sometimes significant storms. And then things continue to be relatively mild, with the exception of the occasional windstorm in the wintertime. And then in spring, we get a little bit more of that meager rain, and that's when you really start to see the wildflowers in the park. And some years, you get these absolutely phenomenal super blooms, where flowers can stretch as far as the eye can see in so many places. So what do you think most people take away from a visit to Death Valley? I think everyone draws something a little bit different from this environment. I think one thing that I find pretty universal is surprise. People aren't always sure what to expect when they get to Death Valley, and they're usually blown away by at least one of the spots that they end up seeing out here. For some, the ultimate desert environment in the United States. But at the same time, people are surprised by the mountain ranges that you find here and the sheer size and scope of the place. I think a lot of people liken it to being on another planet or in another world because it's a landscape that's so different from the frame of reference that many of us have throughout our lives. There's something here for everyone to ultimately marvel at. And, of course, people also take away that it's incredibly hot here. Some people even come here specifically to experience the heat in the middle of summer. So what do you try to instill in visitors when they visit as a park ranger? We really try to focus on people being able to connect to this place. We draw from the idea that with understanding comes love, and with love comes a desire to protect. So we try to help people understand just how incredibly complex and diverse this land is, how rich its history is, and we try to help people find a way to see how these places matter. I try to instill the idea that beauty is everywhere in nature, that life can thrive in the extreme, and that stories go far deeper than the surface here. And I also try to emphasize that we're still learning so much about this place and the world as a whole, and that what you find here is something to be treasured. And hopefully, the things that you can find here will also help you connect to your own backyard and see the value in the natural world and the history of your own community. Let's share with a bit about your biography. I first grew up around Anoka, Minnesota, and from a very young age, I was really drawn to lakes and forests. I have so many early memories of trying to find insects in the woods or looking for snakes or seeing some new plant life and trying to figure out what it was. As I was a teenager, we ended up moving out to the Black Hills of South Dakota, and then I fell in love with mountains and true wild spaces. So I got a degree in English and speech communication, but I was increasingly drawn to the natural world. And so I ended up working at places like Custer State Park and Jewel Cave National Monument in the Black Hills. Then I ended up going back to school to get a master's degree in environmental communication. Ended up traveling up to the north to Mendenhall Glacier out of Juneau, Alaska to work as an interpretive park ranger there. Eventually ended up working as the science communicator at Katmai National Park up in southwest Alaska 
before coming back down to the lower 48 to work at the Grand Canyon, finally transferring here to Death Valley National Park. So I like to say that rangers tend to be a roving lot. We're always endlessly curious, and we fall in love with each place that we go to, but we're always wondering about what is that next site that we really want to get to. Many of us are really familiar with the works of Aldo Leopold, and we treasure that idea that the land that we inhabit isn't just a resource to be extracted. It's a community towards which we all belong. And I think that's really formative to the work that many of us do here within the park. So I've been drawn to Aldo Leopold ever since I first encountered him in college, and I've seen how he's influenced a number of other writers that I draw from, from Edward Abbey to E.O. Wilson. And so I still to this day find him to be an inspiration because he manages to combine that, that scientific rigor with a real sense of poetry. And I think that combination is just incredibly valuable when we talk about the natural world. I'd say the land ethic that he puts forward in Sand County Almanac is formative for so many different park rangers. So does your interest in Death Valley go beyond being a park ranger? Oh, absolutely. I'd say park rangers tend to be the sort that in our free time, we just want to explore the places that we're in. On my weekends and on my time off, I'm constantly trying to get out here to see new aspects of the park and trying to learn more about this environment. And really, each place I go to, I find a new subject matter that I just really fall in love with. So here in Death Valley, I'm constantly exploring more of the geology and really the astronomy that you can learn from an environment like this. So what are some of your best memories of Death Valley? Camping out near Ibex Dunes in the far south. A few things stand out in this memory. On the one hand, this is one place where the diversity of the region really comes alive because at a short distance you have Saratoga Springs, which is one of the largest wetlands in the park, and you just find this collection of birds that you really don't see anywhere else in the park. And then to the east you see these towering sand dunes. I remember camping up there and realizing that there was no one else around. There was just this incredible silence, a silence that almost had a weight to it. And I remember that as the sun set, just the surrounding mountains were just colored in these vibrant shades of pink and orange and red. And I remember that the stars that night were just so incredibly crisp and clear. And I have this memory of hiking out towards Ibex Dunes the next day and climbing up on those dunes. And it's just this incredibly strange and beautiful environment. And there's something really remarkable about walking on dunes when it's still partially shadowed by the early morning sun. I think that's one of the most incredible memories I've had in the park. But there are so many others that are like that. I think of the first time I ended up climbing Corkscrew Peak and realizing that this mountain that you always see looming in the distance has all of these incredible nooks and crannies as you climb up it in almost a corkscrew form and that the view on top is really more spectacular than anything I pictured. I can think of the first time I saw my first kangaroo rat or kit fox. So many memories that layer on again and again. It's really just an incredible environment to explore. I like to say in my podcast a lot, we are nature. How does a visit to Death Valley confirm that? That works on multiple layers here in Death Valley. I think one way you really feel a part of the landscape here is there's just something incredibly humbling about being in the desert. When you're here, you just feel this incredible wonder at the expanse that you find around you. People here just seem incredibly small compared to the surrounding environments. 
there's something profound about experiencing the extremes of climate and what that asks of us. Even just like the root experiences of thirst and heat and that need for shelter make us feel connected to the world surrounding us. And then there's just the knowledge that you can gain here. I think there's the reality that you can look at rock layers that stretch back over 1.8 billion years and see past stories written in that stone and recognize that those past stories still influence the world that we inhabit today. There's this sort of weight to being in the desert that makes you feel like one small part of the much larger ecosystem surrounding you. The more time we spend in nature, the more we don't see a distinct separation between us and that natural world. It's the more we realize that the water we drink, the air that we breathe, the soil from which our crops grow, that everything is bound up in these incredibly complex systems, and that the national park that's 100 miles away influences the town that we ourselves live in in innumerable ways. I often thought that some, sometimes people go to national parks and they see these incredible landscapes and they feel that nature is fine, that it's being taken care of by people like yourself. How do you see the park service playing a role in changing the way we look as a society at nature, that we have to do more than just preserve nature? That's such a good question. It's one that, you know, there are people whose entire career is spent reflecting on that very question. And I think all of us who work in the parks recognize that people who visit the parks can think that nature is fine, but those of us who end up working in the parks feel this incredible sense of responsibility, and we recognize the fragility of the ecosystems that we're looking after. I think one message we try to impart to the public is really tied to that line from John Muir when he says that when you try to separate out any one thing by itself, you find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Because nature is fine over here, that means we don't have to worry about it elsewhere. I'd say that's a perspective that's changing significantly in recent decades. There are recent documents put out Park Service. One of them that really stands out to me is revising Leopold, and it's really about drawing from Aldo Leopold's land ethics to emphasize how parks are connected to the larger world and how the larger world really is connected to the parks. And a part of what revising Leopold really focuses on is the importance of scientific research to develop an understanding of the really complex ecosystems here. We don't fully understand the full array of species that live there. We don't fully understand which ones are threatened, which ones are doing well. We don't understand what impacts our current activity is having. But the more data we collect, the more we can put together a very clear picture. So we really try to emphasize the fact that all of these different places are interconnected with one another. That just because the border of a park doesn't mean those natural processes stop outside of the park. And that really works in both directions, an understanding of these parks and how that can inform their understanding of their own backyard. And to recognize that preservation is one way we protect the natural world, and it involves and incredibly difficult conversations and decisions. That work is always ongoing in a number of ways. So in interpretation, we're trying to bring in a large array of stories, including from voices that are typically ignored or didn't play as big of a role in the original storytelling of the park. And we really try to bring in audience participation more and more in the parks today so that people can share how these places matter to them. So it's 
not just a sage on a stage proclaiming ideas to them, but it's also drawing other people into the conversation so that it becomes an experience where everyone is sharing their knowledge and sharing perspectives on how these places really influence the world around us. It's about increasing scientific research. It's about inventory and monitoring the parks themselves carefully. And it's about finding ways to reach larger audiences to find a way to interact with both the timeless and the timely. Really, it's a million-dollar question, and it's something that we all think about quite a lot working here in the park. One thing we want to emphasize is that the protection of the natural world and our interaction, our relationship with the natural world, that's tied to the actions of all of us, wherever we live and whatever we do in our daily lives. So how has the current environmental crisis global warming and climate change. What are some of the ways that, that that has actually impacted Death Valley? Is it getting hotter? Oh, yes, absolutely. What we're seeing happening in recent years is more records are being broken, and they're being broken on the higher end of the spectrum. We're seeing an increase in daily records being broken. We're seeing that that incredibly intense summer heat is expanding on both sides. So you're getting more and more of those hot days. The trend just increases over time. And while you do get some variance from year to year, that overall trend is definitely towards more days that are in the extreme temperatures and greater extremes. And one thing that we can really see that's kind of interesting is that uh, it's not just daytime temperatures that are rising, but it's those nighttime lows as well. And so that means that after the sun sets, quite frequently, you still get those just incredibly warm temperatures. You can see it changes the dynamic of some of the springs around here. It also changes the dynamic of some of the storms that we experience out here. And we really need to do more research on all of this. But there is some evidence to suggest that wildlife populations are most certainly being impacted by a changing climate as well. And a shift in some of the other prevailing weather patterns that we're seeing here and really, in truth, it's, it's so much data that, to collect that we don't fully understand every way that it is shaping the ecosystem right now. My experience in the parks has taught me, both as a ranger and someone who just is very passionate about exploring these environments, is I genuinely believe there's an enormous amount of value in always being a student of the natural world, always trying to learn something new each and every day. Working as a park ranger in interpretation, it means that I've learned just enough about each and every subject to get just a hint of the true depth, whether it's biology or ecology, whether it's geology, human history, whether it's astronomy, any number of these fields. I get a hint of those hidden depths, and there's something absolutely incredible about constantly trying to learn more, constantly trying to discover something new. And I promise that the more you dig in, the more you will learn and the more exciting it ultimately becomes. And I would encourage everyone to learn about how they can interact with these environments, how they can approach it with knowledge to make sure that they are treating these places with respect. And then I encourage you to get out and experience the public lands around you and to see just what they have to offer because I think all of us can find something to love within the lands around us and we are incredibly fortunate to have so many places to reach, so many places to experience, so many places to be a part of.
I hope you enjoyed my visit with Clint Augustin and that you enjoyed learning as much as I about this special place. The music is a piece called Desert Music by Johan Johansson. Please share Nature Revisited with family, friends, and colleagues. And subscribe to Nature Revisited on your podcast server. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. If you would like to support Nature Revisited or share your thoughts and comments, please visit NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, Productions.com. And I hope you will join me for our next episode. And until then, remember, we are nature.